Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Asha Patel to the podcast. Asha is a clinical psychologist and the CEO of a social enterprise called Innovating Minds. Innovating Minds aims to provide accessible psychological support, supports access to education, training and employment, and it helps organisations build mentally healthy environments. In fact, there's not a lot that Innovating Minds doesn't do. It sounds totally epic, and I'm really excited to find out more from Asha about how she took this idea from a kernel of inspiration to a fully functioning CIC that supports over 6,000 people. So welcome to the podcast, Asha. And I suppose with such a big story, it makes sense to start from the beginning. So I read that you had the original idea for Innovating Minds while you were working in forensic services. Could you tell us a bit more about what sparked that original idea? I guess for me, I even when I was on my doctorate training, I was thinking of a business idea. Uh, so actually, whilst I was on the doctor, I thought of an idea of uh, creating an app for truckies, so drivers to find out where to stop by to get the best uh, healthiest food and to reduce loneliness. Uh, but it, it was an idea. I, I developed a logo. It didn't really go any further. Um, but actually, for Innovating Minds, when I was in Forensic Mental Health Services, so I'd uh, qualified and I'd gone into uh, work in Forensic Mental Health, I'd reached a point probably into about it's less than 18 months um, and I was actually feeling a bit unchallenged. So I got to a point where I, um, I had a caseload of 15, which is quite low but because of the intensity of the work. Uh, I also had a team of psych- assistant psychologists around me and students, so they were getting involved in a lot and I was doing their supervision and supporting them to progress. One of my goals for my assistant was to, get, to support her to get onto the doctorate So she assistant for the first time, first time application, uh, and she successfully got a place on the doctorate. So we'd spent a a good year of uh, prepping her for that. Um, And I just felt like actually, I felt a bit stuck. There was no scope for career progression. And I'd also sold my house. Um, So when I was 21, I bought my own house and it was either sell it or invest money into doing it up. And I decided to sell it. This house I was going to buy after that fell through, so I had some money. So I thought, okay, why don't I invest in myself? When the idea I probably had about a year before, I actually took the leap of faith on leap year day, um, but just didn't have the confidence to. So it was becoming a bit more popular that the media talked about children's mental health. um, And I just want to see the model that we use in healthcare. Would it work in education? Wow. So it sounds like you had a really strong entrepreneurial spirit from quite early on. I don't think many of us are sitting in training thinking about business ideas. Was that something you'd had all through your childhood? Yeah. So this thing of is entrepreneurial, is it, is it genetic? Is it, can it be nurtured? Uh, from the age of 12, I've been working in my family businesses. So my parents have shops. I came over from India. My dad can't read or write, uh, but they built up uh, shops and warehousing and we manufacture products um, and I've always been involved in that and I've also ran my dad's company while my parents have been on holiday so I managed 
people twice the age of me uh, and it's grown to a really uh, successful uh, business. Um, so I've always been, and I've always tried being quite competitive. So I just wanted to, when, whilst when I was running it, can I beat my dad's turnover? Uh, what can I do that he can't do? Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so I wanted to find a way what, what in that type of business, it's very commercial. It's about the bottom line. And yeah, we were selling things like alcohol, groceries, and that really wasn't interesting for me. So I wanted to find a way that I could do my clinical work and pursue the business side at the same time. And the social enterprise model gave me that ability. The more successful we are, the more people that we help. Yeah, I think that's something that really appeals to me about social enterprise too that it's like, because I've got that, I've got that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and I never really knew what to do with it because I knew that I wasn't necessarily motivated to make loads of money. That wasn't going to be the thing that would get me out of bed in the morning. But like finding an outlet for this just ambitiousness where I can always see growth everywhere. I can always see like, oh, but we could improve it by doing this. Um, So you found yourself feeling stuck quite early in forensic services Um, and actually that's something that so far with the people I've interviewed we've not really talked that much about but there is a bit of a lack of career progression for a lot of us um, in the public sector so can you talk a little bit more about that frustration? So this was actually in the independent sector uh, and there was a culture of um, whoever kind of was in first kind of got the next promotion or so it relied on somebody to retire is mm. to move forward and I was the last one in um and therefore when I looked at okay what am I going to do now the the roles and responsibilities I was picking up were kind of maybe more managing some of the group works or uh taking on a particular area of responsibility but I just couldn't see how I could progress into more leadership or and also when I came out of training I came out in, in a, as a band eight uh, so I'd ho- already skipped band seven so after band eight it was like now now what am I going to do mm. um, and also I just wanted to be in a position where you're no longer working towards either a salary increase or an extra job title mm. I found that when you're self-employed that goes out the window you're not really that much concerned about what your salary is going to be you're not really concerned what your job title is because there's no further that you can go because you you're the founder yeah so it becomes more about the impact and the mission yeah and like how far can I spread this yeah. mission and what I thought was really interesting looking at your website is that it's a huge mission <laughs> you know like I've listened to a lot of um entrepreneurial podcasts and stuff it's all about like niche 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 like make your mission really small but I actually found your site really refreshing because it's not small it's big and you're making that happen so how did you first get started with it because it can't have started as big as it is now (laughs) yeah no definitely so when I first started it was um what is it that I want to do and what is it that we can uh what does innovating mind stand for so even a lot of the marketing a lot of actually the initial investment of the money went into marketing and I spent a lot of time of what do people come across innovating minds what should they think that's professional it has an element of personality it's appealing to everybody 
So actually, the in, initial onset was about mentally healthy schools of creating the whole school approach by changing the systems and processes. I really didn't believe in putting counselling in place or me gaining and delivering therapy. It was really about can we change a culture because the curriculum's advanced? Can we change how schools um, work? And actually, the first case study, which is on our website, that was really hard. And I actually questioned whether I made the right step to leave my job and take this leap. Uh, it was very, very difficult. So many different things going on. Uh, I was commuting from Birmingham to London. And that's how it all started, uh, was we won initial contract with the school from exhibiting um, and just kept going there every week. And in me, I just knew if we can make this work here, this can work anywhere. And also it'll lead on to something else. So there's going to be a knock-on effect. We've just got to keep persevering with it. And that's the hardest thing I've done for Innovating Minds is that commute from Birmingham to London three times a week, Oof. not one in person. You're doing a four-hour journey uh, before you've even started a full day's work in a very difficult environment. And that's how it started. So That sounds first, so tough. Yeah, for the first about 18 months, just less than 18 months, I was doing the delivery uh, I was doing marketing. I was trying to win new work. I was writing bids and contracts and um, finding ways really to grow it. And then we um, did win another contract and then that helped me uh, take on my first staff member. Then that led to our first office and just gradually then from there it built on. So it really did pay off, but it did become a point uh, because it was severely affecting me personally and my health and your relationships and everything else. Um, that even if they renewed, I would turn down the contract if I couldn't get, if it didn't grow enough for me to put somebody else in that place. Mm, I think that that is a bit of a scary tipping point, isn't it? For any business, there's a point where if you don't grow enough to take on staff, it's going to crush you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know that feeling. And so you made the decision um, to try and get a contract with a school having worked previously in forensic services so how did you go about getting that contract so um a lot of money went into marketing so we created our brochures our leaflets our marketing stand um and when people were exhibiting so mental health conferences in schools were coming up i'd contacted the exhibitor and said look this is a position i'm in i'm a startup got very little money this is what I'm trying to do we're a social enterprise here's our marketing materials and it's actually because they really liked how we looked and what we were saying so they heavily discounted uh the conferences and I'd turn up with all my stuff set up my own stand and my own table um and just pitch to whoever came to our stand wow and Laurie on our website is the first person uh, is one of the people uh, that heard what we was doing. She was in a position where she was looking for support. One of their children had completed suicide, realised I wanted to do more at the school. Um, and that's what I did for about two or three weeks. I exhibited at different places in Birmingham uh, where we got heavily reduced and some were free. And I thought as long as we get one contract from one of these, then it's going to be worth it. And that's mm. exactly what happened. And I can imagine that actually because... People have a lot of warmth generally towards the sort of things that as psychologists and therapists we're trying to do. Yeah. And I think 
that's one of the real benefits um, of having the social enterprise label, because I think that helps people understand that what you're doing is not about your profit. Yeah. I think it helps people understand that there's a mission behind it. I think although that is the case, because you're in the same circles, because it was mental health conferences for children, it also attracts other people doing something similar to you. Mm. On one of the conferences I remember, somebody complained because they was put next to us and they felt like there was too much competition. Uh, and the exhibitor asked us to have a conversation about it. And I couldn't really understand it because what they was doing was like massage. Um, oh, that's quite different. <laughs> what we do, and it was just a misunderstanding of what we offer and what they offer. Mm. Uh, so actually, even though it should be a nice place to be in, it can also be a very toxic place that I've just chose to stay out of because of people feel like you're trying to compete for funding from the same pot. Yeah, and I think it is difficult. Like funding, that's a whole conversation, isn't it? Like it, it gets seriously scrappy around grants and, and things like that. But I also think, and I mentioned this in the psychologist's business plan, that really in our sphere, what is competition? seriously the need is so huge there's enough need for everybody we're trying to we're trying to tackle something that is bigger than all of us so as far as I'm concerned when I meet somebody doing something similar I'm trying to build an alliance and because there'll always be work that isn't quite for you Mm -hmm. that you can pass to them and the other way around and I just think it's such a shame when people don't have that mindset um because if we all work together, if all of the social enterprises in Birmingham work together, you, you could achieve way more. Yeah, and I think it really depends on what your model is. So mm. I set up to not become grant dependent. Mm. That's why it's a CIC limited by shares because it totally wipes out a lot of opportunities because you're limited by shares. Mm. Um, so it really depends on what your model is. If your model is heavily focused on grants, then that's because there's such a high competition for that. So people. Mm. Uh, really defensive and protective over what what uniqueness they might bring or the, their connections and their networks I guess it depends what your model is as to decide on whether you do go into that or you don't yeah I think that makes sense so how does your model work is it that schools would pay you directly or how do, how does that come yeah, so we have different ranges of uh, income sources. So some schools pay us directly. We have contracts with local authorities. We have contracts with the MHS. Um, sometimes it might be through uh, subcontracting. So we might join a partnership. So a large organization might draw a few millions down and then they find partners uh, to subcontract to. So we'll be a part of that subcontracting. So, um, and then there's also our Healing Together program, which supports children who have witnessed domestic abuse, which our profits are reinvested into. That also has its own income stream as well. Um, so for me, it was really important that we just don't rely on one source. Mm. We have multiple channels open at different times. So if something dries up or uh, the market changes, um, that it, the whole operation doesn't stop. So we've really found different ways of 
generating income, different types of income. Sometimes when we do win tenders, it has to be shown as grant income, but it's money from like European social funding. Wow. So again, it just sounds like it's grown into such a big um, enterprise that I just want to kind of go back actually to that first contract, that first service that you were offering. Yeah. Because that in itself to me sounds massive, kind of going into a school. (laughs) Um, So what was it that you did for that school? What did you put in place? Uh, that school actually the head teacher took a real risk with us she she didn't know when I went to say this is what we'll be doing she didn't really know because you can't you you can't show somebody what it's going to look like because it's ideas and it's psycho so it's in your mind Um, and also she took a risk because she wasn't sure what the journey would look like either but she knew she needed something Um, so the first term was really about an assessment and I just use the same principles we get taught assessment formulation intervention and review and it was really an assessment of the environment the school I mean on the second on my second day we had to phone the police because there was an incident a fight with the students so it really was a real challenge in school it was basically a dumping ground for these children with social emotional mental health difficulties um, assessing the staff their reaction um, their ways of thinking so was it punitive driven was it therapeutic um, and then one of my recommendations was after the first term, I'd tried everything. We tried to change the physical environment. We did an audit to say, actually, it's really overstimulating. Let's change some of the colours. And then I said, can you order backing paper, pastel colours, and then the brightest, most luminous colour had come through. So people were sabotaging what you was trying to do. Um, so in the end, my recommendation was after a term, uh, was change your staff or change your vision. Uh, and it wow, was, that is a brave recommendation. <laughs> it was at the risk of her telling me to get the uh, F out of <laughs> school. And, and she's that type of head teacher, she would have just said, get, get out. And I said, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, it's, this is resource that you're paying for. Um, but we're, we're chucking a lot and nothing's sticking. Um, you're coming on board. Uh, she also accessed supervision as a head teacher. Uh, she used to run away from me for the first term until I until I caught up with her, and, and actually now she really values supervision, um, and that's what we did. She went with um, a restructure, and we supported the school. We redesigned job descriptions. We sat on the interviews. We supported with the induction. We attracted people who had empathy. Um, we and then we got everybody in place for a new new academic year. So within Easter term, we'd gone through the whole restructure consultations, liaise with HR, brought in a new staff team and started afresh. Uh, Oster came in a term later and rated the school good across the board. So we'd reduced That's just incredible. Yeah, it really was. It was a complete turnaround. Children were accessing learning. They were still coming out of classrooms, but actually there was more conversations going on uh, and staff able to bring them back into the classroom attendance increase behaviors reduced by 90 percent it was a complete turnaround for the school um and therapeutic model was there it was in everything it was in people's staff performance um there it was in their cpd it was in their morning meetings wherever we could get it in it there was reflective practice in there uh there's a therapeutic approach they still had to have some kind of punitive approaches, what we'd see of like behavioural and consequences based, but they'd also 
engage with us and we'd find a middle ground. Okay, you've got to tick this box for X, Y, Z. So how can we still get some type of therapeutic and, and reach a middle point? Um, and that's, yeah, and that was the first contract. And then with that school, there was a sister school with it. So we also did the same there. It wasn't as bad. Um, and then there was another recommendation. So we took on another school. So we had one school grew into three schools. Um, and it just built like that. Wow. So at that beginning point... Did you have anybody on board with you or was it just you? Just me. Wow. Yeah, everything was literally, uh, yeah, I lived and breathed uh, Innovative Minds for, yeah, about 18 months. It was all that I consumed, weekends, evenings. Wow. I mean, just from a clinical point of view, what I'm really impressed by is your ability to translate the clinical knowledge into a different environment because I know that is somewhere that I get stuck you know if I'm thinking about consultation for a school or for business those are the ones that kind of come up the most often there is this big block in my head about like oh well I don't know those environments so I don't know (laughs) how did you get over that um I mean that the senior leadership team were really good um and there's a lot of things that well in healthcare this is how we operate but in education it's totally just not that mm. I just used to add I really had to spend time on understanding the education system and all the acronyms that they use and the systems and why they're in place and the senior leadership team knew that I came from a clinical background and not from an educational background so I could just ask the question what does that mean or why is it like this and not like this and well this is how we would do it but how can you translate this in education um so because they were they wanted to make it successful as well I didn't feel like I needed to have all the answers of education and still now when we design in edupod for example I just pick up the phone to a head teacher and say this is what I'm thinking will it work what do you think how will people what will people say about it and I go uh, that that's the same lesson isn't it from clinical work that's exactly how we want to approach it we never want to pretend we're the experts we want to be learning from the ground up and I guess that's what what you did but it just sounds so intimidating (laughs) I kind of can't imagine I can't imagine having definitely times where I go to supervision and be like what am I doing I feel like I'm taking like 10 steps back when I've just taken one step forward so there were definitely times throughout all that period where I was doubting myself or what, what is it that I'm making a difference to here? Because sometimes you can't see it because it's cultural shift and it doesn't happen overnight. Um, so, yeah, it was literally continuously questioning, what am I doing? And then that imposter syndrome creeps in and, yeah, it just spirals. Wow. So you've gone from that first contract to now having lots of contracts and quite a diverse range of services in just, I mean, I guess that must've been four years ago because we've just had leap day. Yeah. So four years. So we're going into our fifth year. Yeah. Wow. So can you talk a bit about all the services that you're offering now? And then we'll talk specifically about EduPod because that sounds super cool. Yeah. So uh, we still have our education service. Um, so that's some of it is like the first contract uh, and others are like training and consultation support so it really depends on the project so we've just come coming to an end of one project working with primary schools to reduce risk of violence and knife crime 
So our role has been educating the staff and working with them to upskill them to support children's emotional well-being, uh, but also doing group work for children and individual sessions. Uh, then we have our employability programmes. So they're running in across Coventry, Warwickshire and Staffordshire. And we're helping people who've got low level mental health difficulties that are risk of need or who are need uh, to help them transition into education, trainer, employment. So it's generally those that fall through the gap. They're not unwell enough to access like mental, national mental health services, community mental health teams, but they also keep coming in and out of work. Mm. Uh, we offer up to about 10 sessions 10 to 12 sessions or group work uh, where we focus on helping them to get to a point where they can integrate back into employment Um, and then there's our healing together program so that started off again as a program that we've built we've piloted it it's changed we've built more onto it and that supports children who have witnessed domestic abuse Uh, and that's going through a current change where we're turning that into train the trainer because we can't meet demand for service. So that's going on in the background. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess that takes your message out even further. So you have people delivering, will they be delivering under your brand or under their own? Uh, So under their own. So we're looking, so when we're we're really keen to make sure we remain quality assurance and measure impact. Um, So we're looking at actually, because from us by seconds, Session two, we had a waiting list of 40 children, and that's a wow. group. Uh, so the more groups we're running, uh, we were running these out of our own profits and our own resources. Uh, they happen after school, um, at our office. So we just wanted to find a way uh, to meet demand for service. Um, so we decided to enable other people to use our programme, train them in it. So we've had requests from social workers, uh, schools have asked for the program uh, clinicians so anybody that has contact with them they don't need to be a trained psychologist that's what our training is all about um, so we're working with somebody uh, from a corporate organization which has been great who's helping to project manage it and strategically take the program into a train the trainer wow so I keep saying wow a lot in this podcast <laughs> so I'm not going to edit it out because I think people will empathize with me <laughs> <laughs> but that that's very impressive um I imagine that to get all of that done now there must be a team yeah so our team grew uh from from about 18 months into operation uh, where I took on two two assistants uh and then within a short space of time probably within 12 months we grew to a team of 13 um and then we come back a little bit so we reduced to I think our lowest has been like a team of eight uh, and it's just going back up again to potentially again back up to 13. Um, so having the team around me was another strategic decision I needed to test whether it was me or the model mm. that was work, what worked was it me because I was delivering it or was it the clinical model of how we delivered it so I purposely put somebody else in place, said, okay, I've got six months for me to bring in new business. Uh, or if I don't, then I'll have to step back into delivery uh, and then let the other person go. So at the moment, are you entirely on the kind of 
growing the business side of things or are you still doing a bit of um, clinical work how's that balanced um so from when was it probably about november december time september i think it was september october time uh, i stepped into one of the projects because we had a staff member leave uh, and the project ended in march and it just didn't make sense to bring somebody new on because that project wasn't a bit unstable as well with how complex it was so I've stepped back into that but what that has given me is contact with schools again on the shop floor so I've still been project uh, managing Edupod uh, so I've become a chief technical officer overnight to do that Um, but that's given me the reassurance of we can keep testing and seeing what our customers want and what they're struggling with Um, so I currently supervise two assistants at the moment Um, but that's okay because actually it keeps me clinically uh, refreshed as well so I'm not losing my clinical skills because sometimes you can go too far back uh, and do a lot of consultation and miss out on the supervision and uh, seeing people clinically and therapeutically. Yeah I think there's always for probably everybody listening to this that's always a bit of a tension where it's like yes I want to grow something that isn't therapy and that's going to require spending a lot of time doing other stuff but our therapeutic skills are quite specific Mm. and you lose confidence quickly if you don't use them I found Um, so always making sure that you've got some element of that has always been important to me. So let's talk a bit about EduPod because I've watched a video about it and it looks amazing. Um, and I think people will be really interested to hear about what you're doing with that. Yeah, so EduPod came to life really. So we'd reached a point last year we couldn't meet demand for service. There's ongoing recruitment challenges for psychologists, geographical challenges. Of, um, and we was literally turn, turning down contracts every month, uh, hundreds of thousand pounds worth of contracts. Um, and also it became quite unenjoyable because of such the recruitment challenges that me and my clinical lead were actually getting quite stressed over it and it just was like wasn't fun anymore so I was kind of thinking okay what was at this crossroads with innovative minds do we just slow things down and just tick along as we are because we can do that or do I pivot and see if we can create a model that's scalable it's scalable in the sense that it doesn't rely on people resource also scales our impact and creates accessibility um about probably about 12 to 18 months before that people kept coming to us and saying have you got enough people because this is going to absolutely blow up i was like yeah 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 you kind of find ways and we've done lots and we had about 40 odd psychologists on a waiting list that said they'd be interested in working with us and stuff like that it's like, yeah, we've got that in hand. But the reality was it, when it came to actually putting all that into practice was very difficult and it also increased costs massively. So we just said, okay, let's try and digitalize it. And I spent months and months trying to think of how we can digitalize our offering. What is it that schools were asking for? What content did people want from us? Uh, and that's when EduPod started to become uh, more alive, really. Um, I spent a lot of time mapping out the process. I also got into a programme with National Express, who I was actually trying to get in front of the NHS, but National Express picked it up, the coach company, and they was interested in what I did and said, actually, you could develop something for us uh, because we have a big problem with 
our drivers and their mental health and all the rest of it. So I said, okay, so I went onto their program, which was very tech based. So I learned about how to create a digital product and nothing happened with in uh, National Express, but I just transferred all that learning into Edupod. Um, and then I needed to find a way how to communicate what I was trying to get across in, to a tech person. And let me tell you, techies are just like dodgy salespeople. <laughs> so hard to find somebody that you feel like you can trust. We oh, are raising from £5,000 to about £150,000 to build Edupod. Yes. And when you're not technical minded, we were a clinician, you just feel so much out of your depth. Well, I did. So we spent a lot of time to in and fro in. And I was a part of the NatWest program, uh, the accelerator program. And then within that network, I just reached out to somebody. One day I thought, I'll just pick up the phone to this guy and see if he can help. They was in a position where they was actually thinking whether they need to go back to work because their business had a dry patch. They said, oh, we'll build it for you. It meets their needs. Uh, they could meet my time frames, And all at this point as well, the Department for Education had released a tender for £30 million, which basically did, they were asking what we did to do what we did. So we had to, had to excel everything so we could be first to market. Wow. So um, you knew that the need was there. Yeah. But if you hadn't been able to respond to it as quickly as you did, potentially somebody else could have gotten in there probably with something less comprehensive. Yeah. And I mean, the contract hasn't been awarded yet, but what it did do, it was confirm everything that I was thinking of. I mean, our platform does a lot more than what, uh, but it just gave me the reassurance to say, actually take the leap of faith. And we invested our profits from 2019. So actually the first half of 2019, we did a lot of project-based. The second half was literally, we slowed down all operations. We just did the bare minimum of our contracts um, and we built Edupod. Um, and for the last for four months from October to January is that was everything of me uh, went into Edupod. Uh, the team picked up everything else um, and I became like a prod tech product developer uh, just by learning. Wow, that is really inspiring to me because I kind of, I, I won a prize um, about a year ago now actually at, at a tech startup weekend to develop a, an app which is for parents, connecting separated parents for whatever reason they're separated. Uh, and I so know what you're saying about you talk to a tech person and you just get more and more overwhelmed because it's like, I don't understand anything about this. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like you found a way to overcome that and kind of battle through with your mission in mind. Yeah. How did you deal with that overwhelming, what acronym are you using feeling? Um, so... For me, I thought initially I needed to be a coder. I need to understand the code. And then I realized actually now I don't because when I looked at a chief technical officer's job role, they're not coders, they're not technically minded. They're just product managers, product developers. So as long as I knew for certainty what my product was going to be, what it was going to do, how it should look, how it should feel, I just need to find a way to communicate that to the developers. 
Um, and that's what I did. So it was very much, I did a lot of reading around other people's experiences and things like um, user experience. And the design was really important. So you could have the crappiest technology, but if it looks good, people are going to use it. Mm. So uh, we kept that in mind. We used our marketing and our colours that were already in our logos. Um, and me and the developer actually worked really well together. Um, and he learned a lot of me as well. So he valued me and so what I'd done with our enterprise, that he was also really keen to learn from me. So our relationship was very much mutually beneficial. And he did really work really hard because of tight dead, uh, deadlines. We built platform from scratch in four months from uh, and testing it beta testing it uh, going out and getting other people to and very pedantic with this is not a capital B or this doesn't work and you click here and it should go there so we've done a lot of to and fro in um, so as it progressed and the feedback was coming in actually then I started to get obsessed with product development and I Kept thinking, and that anxiety crept in of March. You know, it's time for platform to be handed over to us because we need to take it to market. That I felt anxious about doing that because we'd been so much intensely involved in product development. Every time somebody said, "Oh, can you do this?" I'd be like, "Oh, sure, we can." I'd be like, and then go back to the developer and say, "Oh, let's. I've got another idea." So we've had to also learn where to park ideas. Because mm, I guess you don't have to do that so much when you're doing a service because you can always be yeah. like, yeah, okay, maybe that's going to take more time. I have to adapt my quote, but essentially I can do it. Yeah. Whereas when you create something like this, at least until the time when you can afford to update it, it is going to be static for a little while. That must have felt quite different. Um, and, and when you're talking of 20, 30, 40,000 pound of kind of product development time and stuff, you're not talking of a short chain like... You just, people see the end result and don't see what go beh goes behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, so gradually over time, I started to feel more confident. And because I literally just absorbed that as my role, um, that I just felt like I, and I was learning from him all the time and from other people. Um, yeah, so it literally is just a steep learning curve experience. Yeah, and it sounds like all the way through from the beginning, marketing and messaging have been really key to to the business, the way it's operating, because you've always had to market something almost before it's ready. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that as psychologists, we, we struggle with that idea that we've got to market it with confidence before we actually really know what it is a lot of the time. So you mentioned that at the beginning you invested heavily in marketing. Do you mind talking a bit about what what you invested in within marketing? Because I think there'll be a lot of people listening who wouldn't know necessarily where the best place to put any money they've got for marketing is. Yeah, so if I give you an idea, so when I set up Innovating Minds in terms of finances, I um, decided that I was going to put £30,000 aside for the year and that if, I couldn't generate income. I was just going to forget innovating minds and go into a job. Uh, but actually, it only took seven and a half thousand pounds. And of that seven and a half thousand pounds, probably about three and a half, four thousand pounds was spent on marketing. That was the design of the first website, so not the current one that you're seeing. 
Um, it was designing uh, leaflets, booklets, um, a marketing stand, so roller banners. Also, we've got a curve banner as well. Um, it also paid for like exhibiting space. Um, and what I will say is actually we do less exhibiting now because the market's changed. Uh, so sometimes it can cost you, we've paid up to like £4,000 for a day to exhibit somewhere. Um, and it can cost you even more. Some, some places, um, bet, can cost £20,000, doesn't even go very far to exhibit over three days. That's so, shocking. I had no idea. So it can range, the price can massively range, but exhibiting now is more like, it's not to get contracts, it's to say, here I am, I'm out there, and people start to become familiar with your brand. So when I think about marketing, it's not necessarily to bring in work. It's, it's like a witch shop, shop window front. People looking, people doing their due diligence on you, uh, people, you being at the forefront of people's minds. So when somebody says, oh, we want some help in a school, some, some experts and professionals, innovative minds pops to the, in the forefront, oh, I saw somebody. And that's how a lot of our network's been built, is through our marketing messages, through our social media, through videos. Uh, I present, I do keynote speaking conferences, um, and we choose as well what we want to get involved in. So we don't put our quality or reputation at risk. So there's some things that we've declined to say, no, that, that doesn't fit with what we represent as. So do you have somebody on your team who is responsible for marketing now? Yeah. So we have somebody who, so we pre uh, schedule our social media uh, that also links to our website. So we use a CRM system called HubSpot. So you can see people that come in, leave their details, so then we can catch up with them. But also it shows you link to your social media um, and where the most traction is and what pages have landed on and where they've spent the most time reading and stuff like that. It's quite stalkerish, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of scary. That... <laughs> but I can see how that would be really useful. I didn't know that there was uh, things out there that could do yeah. that. Yeah, so even if you send a PDF, you can get the data to say which page they look at the most which pages did they skip, that type of thing. So we have somebody dedicated to our social media channels. Um, so we post across Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, and Instagram as well. Um, um, I send them information so they don't work in the office. They do two days a month remotely. Um, and it was an assistant psychologist that she started with me from the start, really got into uh, liking, she's very creative. So we had templates designed by our design company for like Twitter and Instagram so she can drag and drop images or quotes and stuff in there. So if you go onto our social media pages, it looks all the same. So the branding is there. So we don't compromise on that. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of using the assistant psychologist role in that way. But I can imagine just in my head now, I can think of a couple of assistant psychologists I've known from other roles yeah. that I've been in who would love that, especially um, to be able to do it for flexibly from their own home. Yeah. That sounds like a brilliant opportunity. And actually what it has done with, with our assistants, because they've been exposed to other things going on in the organisation, 
but it's also widen their view on actually clinical psychology doesn't have to be the only route they go down. So there's actually opened up their eyes to say, actually, I don't need to be qualified to do this, or I prefer to do this, and I've never thought about going into marketing. And because they're psychologically minded, that really works really well. So everybody in our organization, I keep them updated on the finances. I keep them updated on, uh, we're currently in the process of seeking investment, keep them updated on uh, how we're going to do our targets and our review with the accountant and all that. So they get involved in the business side of things as well. So they know that it's just not clinical, that they can get work with me on other projects. And to me, I think that's an important aspect of a social enterprise, actually, that it should also be about you know, looking after and nurturing yep. the, the team. And that, that comes through really nicely, actually, on your website. I went on the little careers tab no. <laughs> um, and I just thought that's, that's really nice. And that gets missed quite often. But a social enterprise isn't just about the people you're serving. It's also about being a good employer yeah. and a responsible one. Yeah, and we've actually found where we've actually pushed people out the door to say, because they love working for Innovative Minds, that you, they come a point where you think actually you being here is no longer good for your career because you want to progress this route and you need to move on. So we've also had to have those conversations like, we love you working here, but actually for you personally, you, you've got to move on, come back after you've done whatever. But yeah, for your own personal career progression, it's time for you to go. That must be so hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> it is, but it's it's the best, it's the least selfish thing to do. So, I mean, I'm guessing you've probably got massive plans for the future. Um, where do you see it all going? Um, so actually, um, this year and next year, because um, we've pivoted with Edupod, uh, we've been in the process of, Whilst we've been building Edupod, we've also been seeking uh, social investment. Um, so who it'll be from and everything will be revealed once once I can say. Um, but we have been in the process of seeking financial investment to take Edupod to market, uh, which is another big, uh, I guess, another step, another milestone, because now we're going to show how we can work with investors. And if in the future we want to go for commercial investment, then that opens up doors. Um, so we're just going through that process at the moment. Um, and then it is really taking Edupod to market, whether it's uh, the UK market and the international markets. Um, so we restructured our organisation in terms of job roles and people and how we work um, to make it fit into more of a technology-driven organisation. Uh, we're not replacing everything with technology, so there's still going to be people that we need because we can't replace our clinical experience through digitalization. And then the other biggest uh, project is the Healing Together Pro program, Turn It to Train the Trainer. So just in um, identifying a publisher to publish the manuals and create the resources so it's professionally done. Um, and we're building our board as well, our non-exec board. Um, so we've had, what's been really nice is that we've had commercial people uh, who have got significant networks. So people from BlackRock, Rothschild, um, that they want to come and join our board. So we're strategically uh, changing our board as well. So we have people in roles of commercial, project development, tech, marketing, finance. Um, so that's the next stage in terms of governance as well for us. 
Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. So I know that if you're incorporated as a, a social enterprise, as a CIC that's limited by shares, you have to have a board. But what does your board do for you? Yeah, so you don't have to have a, a governance board. So you you have a, your directors, so it might be just you, or you, there might be three others if you've got three independent and you have your own meetings. Whereas we've got a, a non-exec board and we meet every quarter uh, and we review, uh, I write a CEO's report where I report back on uh, our financial targets, our impact, any significant matters for discussion, um, anything that's going on in the business or any concerns that they should be aware of. Uh, we have K, uh, KPIs as well, so we look at a map against them. Uh, the marketing um, guy, he gives us an update on the marketing report. Uh, finance, uh, who's ever responsible for finance portfolio, they look at all our accounts. They look at cash flow, money coming in, money going out, is there profits, what, what's going on there. And they're very much responsible for the governance. So they're there to, they question basically, it's like a critical friend. Why are we doing this? What's going on here? Uh, we restructured our company as well. So we've got a holding company and a subsidiary company. So we went through the legals of that and what does that mean for us? Um, so they're very much around, and also like, like we're going through investment, our non-exec director in finance is a partner at PwC. And that's her day-to-day -day job is acquisitions of multi-million pound businesses. So I can lean on her to say, this is what we're looking at doing. Can you meet the investors? Can you look over the paperwork? What kind of questions do I need to be asking? So they're the rest experts in those fields. So when I'm doing something specific, I can draw upon people. Some of the, one of the board members I've taken to are a really important commercial meeting because we started off on the back foot from the start because they're, they're massive and they've got the lingo, they've got the terms and conditions, they've got the legal team. Uh, so he came with me and he was able to play good cop, bad cop, and he was able to advocate on our behalf and really negotiate for us, which puts us in a stronger position. So they all do different roles and responsibilities. Um, I always wanted a board that wasn't a yes board that just says yes and goes along with everything that you say that really do challenge you. Um, so we have quarterly review meetings uh, with them. And like, forgive me, because this is probably a bit of a daft question, but are these people who are just really passionate about what you're doing and, and want to want to be on the board as volunteers or are they paid? Like, how do you? Yeah, so, uh, we have paid before uh, for uh, non-exec members. It really depends what they're bringing and whether we feel that that, that should be ruminated. Our current board members are not paid. Um, and it's be probably because they want to give back it is because they want to give back or they've got um, a skill set that they they've been on previous boards maybe somebody who's looking to join us he had a family experience around mental health um, didn't really think that mental health problems existed then had something in their family and thought actually I want to do more um, and he he was actually going to draw in a large charity mind and his team convinced him to have a look at a, a smaller organization um, he went we'd got some funding from the four about pounds to hire a business development manager and they recommended some organizations they gave him 10 uh, and he chose us 
So it's through that networking and through when when we do receive funding, grant funding particularly, we go above and beyond and we deliver because we want people to use as case studies as best practice. So we've had School of Social Entrepreneurs write about us. We've had the four grant write about us. We get contacted by newspapers and stuff that want to demonstrate a good case study. Mm, so it's another advantage of putting yourself out there, networking, being a visible face yeah um so that people get to know you they find out find out about your story without you necessarily having to always pay for that through paid advertising yeah yeah that sounds like genius marketing (laughs) Um, and you'll get phone calls do you want to pay to be in this magazine and stuff and initially we have a couple of times even now if somebody phones our office uh tracy admin her first question is do we have to pay They'll say yes, and she'll say, that's not our policy, and put the phone down. Sorry, that's not our policy. Uh, we don't pay for advertising because it, it doesn't get in front of the right people that you want to get in front of. Mm. I think that's very often true. And even if I think about my own experience, if I'm flicking through a publication, do I pay more attention to the adverts or to the articles? Yeah. Um, so if you can if you can actually have something interesting to say and get that into an interesting article that's always going to go further so I've got a couple of selfish questions I feel like I've taken up loads of your time and I'm so grateful Um, but there are a couple of things I just want to finish off with so firstly selfishly who would you like to see interviewed for this podcast in the future if I could get hold of anybody oh does it have to be a psychologist no not at all can be anyone Michelle Moan. Um, so she's somebody that when I first started Innovating Minds, I used to read a lot of people's autobiographies and she's the one that I've always stuck with. And actually when I'm feeling not so confident in what I'm doing, I find that I look at what she's doing for like inspiration. It's always helpful, isn't it, to have somebody like that who's maybe a few steps ahead yeah. Um, where you can just you know that they've been generous and, and shared their story so you can tell it wasn't always amazing for them yeah. and you can read how they got through it mm-hmm. okay brilliant she sounds like a very good guest I will look up her autobiography add it to my nightstand <laughs> I've got about 10 on there at the moment um, and I'll see what I can do who knows Twitter's a powerful thing <laughs> um, my second selfish question is if you could ask the psychologists and therapists listening to this podcast to go away and do two action steps, what would those action steps be? For in the context of if they want to grow their, their organisation. Yeah, or even start one. Start one. I guess to start is having what your clear vision is. Uh, or what your mission is so I was very clear I knew from the start that I didn't want to do therapy because I didn't want to see an effect I wanted to be able to have something that I could just keep growing that it wasn't limited by how many hours in the day I had um, so know what you want um, what your mission is and secondly is get rid of everybody in your network and your Facebook who is toxic 
associate based and not really a true friend. Uh, that's one of the best things. And the first things that I did when I committed to Innovating Minds was I reduced all my social circles. I got rid of people I was just seeing because you thought you had to. Because um, you, when you're doing that, there's a lot of people that will say, why are you doing that? You can't do that. I'm very negative and critical about it. You don't want those people around you because it's hard enough anyway. So you want people that are actually supportive and understanding. Yeah, that's really interesting because it can feel so vulnerable when you're starting a new enterprise to kind of put it out there and run the risk of people going, hey, get back in your box. And I think it can make people feel really uncomfortable, Uh, even colleagues who maybe that's not the right path for them. So it feels a bit confronting that you're doing something a bit different. I think, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I think it is that being kinder to each other. Um, People have different views and different visions and missions, and and that's okay. So it's not being critical against your own colleagues or what other people are doing. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important message. So thank you so much for talking to us today. It's, It's been... A really epic story. <laughs> it just feels like in four years, this has become something really massive. And I'm really confident that it's just going to keep growing and growing. And I'm looking forward to following that story. And I hope that you'll keep uh, posting your progress in the Do More Than Therapy group, um, because it's really inspiring for all of us to see how you've taken a one person consultancy, basically, and grown it into a tech startup (laughs) yeah that's just really cool um so i'm sure loads of people are going to want to look you up and connect with you so the website is innovatingmindscic.com yeah and edupod will be myedupod.com and when is that likely to go live uh hopefully next week ah that's so exciting so that will be live by the time this is aired edupod will be live it should be yes so you should all go and check it out definitely um if people want to connect with you on social media obviously you're in the do more than therapy facebook group um so they can find you in there but where else is good to connect with you Uh, linkedin is good twitter i don't use so much of i found that there's twitter linkedin so many that actually i focus more on linkedin so linkedin's also a good place i've been posting videos as well on there so i do get quite a lot of requests of different advice and tips and stuff like that so that they'll be on there as well brilliant so are you asha patel on linkedin yes i I believe so i think it's dr asha patel that comes up brilliant so what i'll do is i'll put all of those links into the show notes for this episode so that people can find you really easily because what i find on linkedin love it though i do is that i can't tell if i'm connecting with the right person a lot of the time i think my profile pitch is the same across most of them so yeah that's very helpful very helpful okay well thank you so much for this interview and i can't wait to hear the response to it great thank you so much thank you for listening to this week's episode of the business of psychology podcast if you share my passion for doing more than therapy then make sure you come over and join my free do more than therapy facebook community where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists i'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts it will help more of the people who need it to find it 
See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.